Sluts and Scholars, a podcast for professionals who prioritize pleasure. You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Sluts and Scholars is a podcast produced by Sluts and Scholars Media, LLC. It is a shame-free educational podcast made for your entertainment and informational desires only. The podcast, any opinions we share, and any resources, including social media and emails from us, are not therapy, medical care, or professional advice, and do not create a patient-client relationship. None of the information, opinions, suggestions, resources, or exercises mentioned in this podcast should be used without clearance from your healthcare provider. All opinions, information, and ideas expressed by the guests are solely their own. If you need emergency mental health or medical help, please call 911 or 988 or go to your nearest emergency center. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta Heidegger, and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I am excited to welcome Dr. Elowen Samadhi, she, they. They are a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in the treatment of PTSD and other trauma-related disorders. I have a lot of awesome people on this podcast, and I'm always proud of all the things they do, but lean in because this is a very impressive bio. Uh, she works in private practice and at Sage Integrative Health, a holistic psychedelic clinic in the Bay Area. Elowen served as an independent rater for the phase two and three MAPS MDMA trials for four years and began providing post-IV ketamine integration in 2015 at Mass Gen, Mass General. I've been watching a lot of Grey's Anatomy. Mass Gen Hospital. She completed ketamine-assisted psychotherapy training with Polaris Insight Center and the MAPS MDMA-assisted therapy training, and also completed the UC Berkeley Psilocybin Advanced Facilitator Training under the mentorship of Dr. Susanna, am I saying this correctly, Bustos? Got it. All right. And is qualified to provide legal psilocybin services in Oregon. Dr. Samadhi serves as a lead psilocybin therapist for the UCSD Phantom Limb Pain Clinical Trial and has trained several of the co-therapists. She's guest lectured for Alchemy Community Therapy in Oakland and Berkeley Academy and supervises and mentors several psychedelic therapists in training. Elowen is currently in her final year that we started together of the three-year somatic experiencing training. Dr. Samadhi has a passion for teaching somatic therapy, safe and reparative touch work, as well as the ritual and spiritual practice of guiding. Elowen is biracial and bisexual, hey, and the bedrock of her spiritual path is non-dual, tantric, animistic, and pagan. Welcome, Dr. Elowen. Thanks so much, Nicoletta. It's definitely a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but my mouth feels uh, full in a good way. Off <laughs> uh, to a good start now. <laughs> okay, so let's ta- let's talk psychedelics. <laughs> um, okay, so before diving into the healing and exciting parts, I'd love to just kind of like take the temperature of the current state of affairs for psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, Mm. I've had a few folks on talking a little bit about psychedelic assisted things, but obviously in the last several years, things have expanded. Everyone's wanting to try and do so like what's in California, what's Mm. the kind of current state of affairs and what can we kind of expect down the the pipeline? Yeah, it's a great question. I like to say that it's sort of the wild west right now. There's a lot that's just n- not quite, uh, we're in the chrysalis in a way. We're not quite, quite to fruition yet. Um, mm-hmm. So right now, you know, everything is, is legal. 
and non-medicalized except for ketamine, which is a medicalized substance. I believe it's schedule three. So you can experience ketamine assisted therapy legally above ground as a, as a phrase. Um, or you can participate in a clinical trial with some of the other medicines, some of the classics like psilocybin or MDMA. Um, there are some, you know, towns or cities that have decriminalized. Uh, Oakland is one of them. I think there's a few more in the Bay that have decriminalized things. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can actually go to a center and pay for, you know, psychedelic healing. Um, California's had had trouble with legalizing and medicalizing. You know, the bills that Scott Warner keeps, Weiner, I always say his name wrong. Oh, he would he, know better than I would. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, you know, he's, he's pushing these, these bipartisan bills and they're getting sort of halfway and then shut down. And there's like, just this process keeps happening. But I think California is going to be in it for a longer road. Um, you know, Oregon obviously was really quick to to move to decriminalize and move to medicalization. Colorado is also decriminalized a lot, although a lot less substances, only only psilocybin and a few others, but not MDMA and not LSD. Um, and they're in the process of developing the um, regulatory rules for how like healing centers are going to work and whatnot, mm -hmm. and hopefully learn from Oregon because Oregon has definitely made a lot of mistakes and we thank them for their willingness to be the guinea pig, <laughs> the first state to do it. Yeah. I mean, I talk a lot about on the podcast about decriminalization and legalization in terms of sex work. Mm. And so I'm curious if it's the same in psychedelics. So if you're, if you're familiar with this aspect of it, what's kind of the difference between legalization or medicalization and decriminalization. And is there, is there a preferred? Cause I know in sex work, a lot of sex workers advocate for decriminalization versus legalization, um, mm -hmm. for a variety of, of like, of reasons that I'll put some in the podcast notes, but how are those kind of different and, and what seems to be the hope for psychedelics? Yeah, it's a great question. I'd love to actually hear your answer, uh, about that for sex work. Um, it's it's really, you know, all paths lead to Rome. And so I think there's there's something for everyone in each path. And ideally, we have all options available so that someone can really uh, personalize their their relationship with psychedelics, right? Mm -hmm. Right now, medicalization, and you know, that's a huge piece. One, that means that basically the state or federal level, and again, we're sort of working at all these, um, it's almost like the Russian nesting dolls, you know, we've got like the county <laughs> yeah. level and the city level and the state level and federal. Yeah. <laughs> and all, you know, those can be different and contrary mm -hmm. to each other, which makes things really confusing. Mm -hmm. um, and so medicalization is really about like the state or at the federal level, recognizing that this thing has a, a medical value. So I believe Schedule 3, I'm going to kick myself if that's wrong, but I'm hoping it's Schedule 3, is a controlled substance, but that has medical value. So the, the system recognizes that this does something for people. And that route is really important for people who don't want to you know, do community-type work, don't want to sit with their friends or with a guide that feels like it's not in a medical setting. You know, they want it to feel really medicalized. And eventually that path, you know, 
would hopefully lead to insurance coverage, which hopefully would lead to you know Medicaid coverage. And so ideally, the government's actually funding some of the access to this like they would any other medication. Mm-hmm. So that, that has a lot of value for it, you know. But right now, because like a great example is Oregon, you know, the cost at this point for a psilocybin trip is like $3,000, you know, and I don't, I don't know if that even includes some of the prep and integration. So it's incredibly prohibitive for so many people. So decriminalization, I think really, um, it really creates a lot more opportunity for people because it says, okay, the federal agents aren't going to try and arrest you if you're doing this. It's not legal, but we're not, it's basically like, we're not going to prioritize this when it comes to um, law enforcement, right? And so in, in Colorado, for example, they've decriminalized things so much so that you can um, gather in a group and you can provide, like I could give you mushrooms, not for, not for a fee, but I could give you mushrooms and share them and we could take them together and that would be totally decriminalized. Like the, the police force will not be interested in enforcing anything. Um, and so that really makes accessibility uh, a lot more possible for a lot of people. And a lot of people have um, trauma from the medical system or they don't trust it. You know, if it's a person of color, if there's a person who has any disabilities that's been really like poked and prodded or misused by that system, they may really feel that that's not a safe path for them. And they would rather be in community. They'd rather be hosting, you know, community groups or community integration and feeling like they get to be in a natural setting, you know, like their home environment or, um, going to a forest or things like that. But for others, the medical system actually feels like a safer path. And so ideally we have all of these so that a person can feel into what is best for them. Mm. Yeah. I mean, to, to answer your question, thank you for bringing that down. Um, to answer your question about the sex work aspect and, um, I don't want to misquote either because I'm I'm sex work adjacent, so I don't want to misspeak for for all. But from what I've from what has been shared with me on the sort of uh, legal level and personal level for folks in that space is that kind of like what you were saying that decriminalization makes it more accessible for all um, because if we legalize, then there may be all these sort of legal um, requirements that a person has to jump through, which on one hand maybe could feel better, safer for some, but for others, it might be cost prohibited. And so then they won't be able to sort of do it and they will have to sort of exist under the, the legal protections. So whether they can't afford certain requirements or whatever it is, it might be prohibitive, especially for, um, for folks of color and, and certain kinds of sex workers, um, versus decriminalization is, is more accessible. Um, decriminalization, um, people also advocate for that so that it is, um, safer and more protective, um, to help prevent, you know, folks who are being trafficked. Um, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people have tried to go the legal route to shift that, but it's actually had a backfire effect. And so if we decriminalize, then people who are most familiar with folks who are consensually doing sex work and those who are being trafficked are able to step forward without fear of, um, legal consequences. Wow. That just makes all the sense to me. Yeah. Right. It'd be nice if some of the things were logical, but, um, not. (laughs) It also brings up this piece, you know, I work on a research trial and there's, um, 
you know, I spoke to it kind of from the the client or the per, the participant, the patient, whatever word you want to use there. Um, the person seeking healing, I spoke to it from that perspective, but from the provider perspective, the legalization or the medicalization is highly restrictive. I'm the what I'm allowed to do in this research trial is pretty much the antithesis of how I work in the real world clinic, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, I have a lot more freedom to to be how I think is best for that person. So it allows for this more personalized, low state, attuned, creative process. You know, there's obviously risks around that. So again, there's like pros and cons to each where you could say that the medical model, um, because it's going to really enforce like a strict code of ethics, could be a safer path. And this other path where there's no set ethics, like is a place where people could get more abused. And it's true, but also not true because it happens all the time in the medical system anyway. And so, you know, there's this um, there's this other piece of like being able to individualize treatment a lot better, not in a medical system. Yeah. And if folks listening are interested in that, I encourage you to go back to a episode I did with Ifatayo Harvey um, mm-hmm. about about this and sort of medicalization for for BIPOC folks. But I want to get into the medicine aspect of it. Um, because you were talking about, well, it would be nice if people who, you know, could get funding for this thing that can be, that we're seeing can be healing. Mm-hmm. What are, like, let's start with MDMA. Mm-hmm. Um, why MDMA? Like, what is it about this medicine? How does it work for people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's so many ways to answer this question. Um, so generally I like to think of this is a very oversimplified model, but it's practical. So I, I tend to think of um, things as um, having sort of three layers. One, there's like the the medical model of it, that like biochemical effects of something, right? Yeah. And then there's the psychological effects of it, right? That's like the my space, the psychotherapeutic space. And then there's this like shamanic spiritual piece as well. And that perspective. Now for my spiritual orientation, those are the same thing, actually. They're not different. The Mm. biological and the spiritual are the same thing. How is biology not spiritual? So for me, those are actually like one. Oh, can you say a little more about that? Well, I'm a pluralist. And so what that means is that I believe that there's no separation and you know, my spiritual home is in tantrism, classical tantrism. And so for me, the mundane and the spiritual are the same thing. There's no distinction between the two. But in a lot of the, you know, the Abrahamic traditions, especially, they actually separate those two. There is such a thing as God. And then there's this other thing, right? There's good and there's evil. So there's this separation from things. And so there's a sense that your everyday routines aren't ritual, which often leaves people feeling like there's no meaning in their life. They're just like slogging through life in a way because the meaning has been sucked out of their everyday activity. Yeah. And so the, the idea- They think they need to do some big thing to have a big spiritual awakening as opposed to maybe living in that ritual like you're describing. You got it. It's sort of the difference between transcendent faiths, which are all of the embryonic religions are that, um, Buddhism is that as well, and um, what we would call like a more embodied or earthbound um, 
spiritual orientation, which means that like, no, no, heaven and hell, those are, you know, not concepts I believe in, but it's here. Every, everything is right here. Like it's Mm -hmm. right now. And, Mm -hmm. and it's, you can access that. And, you know, if you, we, if we get into like some of the nitty gritty of quantum physics, then like, um, we can really quickly get into how things are a wave and a particle. And so the effect of our perspective, you know, changes reality. And so for me, what that means is that I'm, I am a living, breathing facilitator of my own reality. And how is that not the same thing as what spirit is? Mm. How, how, how is that different? And so when I, when I bring that in, normally people really struggle because they, they want to separate them. And what I find naturally, at least in the way that I hold the space, you know, and I'm pretty upfront with like, here's who I am and I may not be your cup of tea. Um, so feel into if I'm a good fit for you, the way that I hold the space. Um, when people are in the medicine space, they ultimately, I see them start to move towards this where they start to feel like, you know, everything is spirit. There is no distinction, you know, that's a, that's a lie that you've been told in a way. And your life can be so much richer when you believe that making your cup of coffee is actually like this really sacred ritual that you're doing. You know, that's, that's the thing I do for my husband Bjorn. Part of our Dom sub dynamic too, is like really wanting to be of service to him. And and so love is actually another layer here for me of spirituality. Mm-hmm. A little tangent, but no, to a great tangent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's going to be so hard for us to not go on a million of those. Because <laughs> now I'm like, oh, coffee, Dom sub. Well, let's go on that tangent. Um, okay. Back to the biopsychosocial of psychedelics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So MDMA, you know, from a neurobiological standpoint, like what we're, and the research is still sort of updating itself. It's like, it's repeatedly testing hypotheses and then studies are being done and actually not being able to repeat the findings. And so new conclusions are being drawn. So this is like a big asterisk. And it may be that these things that I say are moot in a year. Um, But for right now, what we see is that MDMA, it has sort of a like it likes to work on a few different neurotransmitters. Some of the other ones like psilocybin are really, they really have an affinity for one type of neurotransmitter. But for MDMA, it sort of likes a whole bunch of different things. Um, so it, it works on serotonin and norepinephrine and dopamine. And um, so it can have all these effects in the brain that ultimately lead to a decrease in the amygdala, decrease in activation. So fear is coming down when that's happening. And we're seeing an increase in some of those um, like meso, some of the areas that are basically in charge of empathy and connection and things like that. And um, the prefrontal cortex, it's very complex. There's some areas that are activating and some that are are deactivating. But ultimately what we're seeing is that the, the general picture is that people are experiencing less shame and fear And that is enabling them to have access to memories or aspects of themselves that would normally be too much to approach in an ordinary state of consciousness. So people very naturally actually move towards traumatic material. You don't need to take them there at all. They just kind of go there in that space. And 
they're they're flooded with oxytocin. MDMA also increases oxytocin in the system. And so there's this sense of being able to have more self-compassion in the moment as you look at painful memories, more compassion for other people, a sense of deeper intimacy, you know, which is especially important with the guide as they're, you know, moving towards some traumatic material. And so there's this idea that um, people thought that it might have reconsolidated fear, but actually what we're seeing is that, um, or extinguished fear, what we're seeing is that it's probably actually just creating this other experience of getting to be with the memory without all the fear. And then that is remembered and that's carried forward. So then when the memory comes up later, this the brain has the option of like, oh, okay, yeah, this used to be really fearful, but remember when it wasn't? Mm. And is, so then is this there's where, this integration. Like, is this where neuroplasticity comes in in terms mm. of that? Because I, I, if you listened to the podcast before, attended any of my events, I often preach about the importance of like how pleasure and play can change mm-hmm. your neural pathways, and that is because there's sort of a neurochemical cocktail happening of things like dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, you know, all these norepinephrine right happening when we play, when we pleasure, like sexually or otherwise. And if you can sort of, this is where sex magic happens or Mm. also the science of changing your brain. Like Mm -hmm. if you can pair what you want to change with this sort of neurochemical experience, it magnifies neuroplasticity, meaning your brain's ability to change. So is that what's happening here where people are like having this new experience, addressing things that aren't scary anymore, but it's getting coded in an even stronger level because of the neurochemicals? Absolutely. And, you know, that, that word is more like the word tree. And so there's a lot of ways in which the brain can become plastic. And Mm -hmm. I don't know this for MDMA, but I know it for, uh, for psilocybin that there's research at this point that shows that there's actually synaptogenesis. So there's new synapses actually being formed. So this is like at a really like core structural level here that we're seeing changes. Um, so it's sort of like that, um, the the neurons that wire that fire together wire together right and so we're creating this like um this thing where you don't unlearn something that's impossible you know if you throw a a stone into a river and you take the stone out the river's forever changed it it happened right but what we're doing is creating this other experience that then can compete in your mind for you know for that learning for that lesson for that experience and so then that window of neuroplasticity is really fertile in those few weeks after these dosing sessions. And so that's really like exactly the time to sort of reinforce and lay down some of the new ways of orienting to yourself or your life or um, any practices that support that, that new way of being the way that feels, you know, probably more healthy and in, in whatever that means for that person. I mean, some of the main themes and concepts you were talking about that it helps people with are some of the main themes and concepts that I see for folks who come into my sex therapy practice. Mm. And so I'm curious, you know, without crossing any confidentiality study boundaries in a, whatever way feels comfortable, like how have you seen this kind of work maybe help people with sexual and relational struggles? I mean, just... Uh, <laughs> Is it, is it cheating to say everything? <laughs> um, no. Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> I feel like MDMA in particular is like just such an exquisite medicine for, for interpersonal wounds, um, whether that's war or sexual trauma or 
um, physical abuse from a parent or neglect, you know, some, a lot of folks with trauma have this mix of both like a paucity of safe touch and too much harmful touch. And so you really want to strike that balance in these sessions, you know, and, and there's a whole thing that we can get into about how do you do touch in psychedelic sessions and the, the whole piece around, there's so much there. Yeah. Cause I know, I mean, unfortunately there are bad seeds in every community in our world. So I think un- double, unfortunately, when things like that happen in a space that's already stigmatized or taboo, people really, really cling to it because there, there have been some bad actors within the psychedelic space, just as there have been in most spaces. Absolutely. You know, and two of those folks were part of the MAPS trial and there's mm-hmm. a video of it, you know, Oof. so there's, it's, yeah, don't, don't watch it. It is, yeah. um, you don't need to see it. Um, but I would invite people because like you said, it is the wild west. We mm-hmm. are about harm reduction here. And so I have a colleague who's been on the show before, um, Dr. Kat Meyer, and sh- I'll put it in the show notes. She's got a great packet that she made a free access packet for like how to vet your guide, basically. Mm-hmm whether you're going through a medical route or more underground, you know, below options. Um, so check that out to make sure that you are finding a space that is like safe and trauma informed and all of that. Absolutely. That I'm so grateful you have that resource for people. That is uh, honestly, a lot of my work is cleaning up the mess of, uh, of bad things that have happened, you know, and that's not to say that that's the majority of the experience. That's just sort yeah. of at this point, what people un- tend to come to me for. Um, if you want to look up the maps thing, Jensen is the name of the person. And if you just Google maps, Canada, you'll, you'll see some articles and there'll be videos. So you can choose to watch that or not. And there's usually explicit warnings on there. Um, so yeah, the, you know, I feel like MDMA in particular is, is so helpful for healing sexual trauma and, and for, because eroticism can be experienced in any form in that space, you know, it can come up as a sense of like Eros, this like life force energy, or it can be really obviously erotic. Right. And we really want to make space and celebrate that, but also in a way that's safe and not um, confusing to that person. We're not like engaging and participating with them, but we're also like, yes, this is like a gorgeous experience and like keep going into that with yourself. Um, so in that space, I think, especially if I have a co-guide, you know, and it's a male guide, um, there's a lot of opportunity for healing in that space. Mm -hmm. So being able to have a, you know, let's say a woman who's experienced, you know, sexual abuse, um, or rape and, and in that space, they're they're confronting that, and there's a man in the space right here, you know, and, and sexual abuse or rape from a man. Um, of course, it can happen from a woman or any other gender. Yeah, um, but you're saying having a corrective, safe space experience just in the presence of a masculine absolutely. energy. Absolutely, and I I think it it pairs well with you know if someone can actually eventually get to a point of sexological body work, like I think that is one of the most profound healing modalities out there. I I dislike strongly that I can't just say, go, go get that. (laughs) Um, as someone who actually, you know, received some of that work and found it, um, you know, it, it was life-changing for me. It was totally life-changing. 
and and actually like became a portal for my own understanding of my sexuality more. It helped me understand my relationship to, to BDSM in a really new way that I, I actually had no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've, and I've got a lot of, you know, trauma history here. And so it was really helpful for me to, to get to that point. So I think like, if possible, if someone can actually get those two arms, you know, not necessarily at the same time, MDMA might help you work up to that kind of experience. Um, but I, I feel like they are ultimately doing the same thing. They're trying to create a safe space for a person to work out some of those things, just like the kink space does, right? It's like about transmuting and channeling yeah. what happened and reclaiming it so that it becomes this place of empowerment and eroticism and release rather than this place of like, this was done to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. And if you're curious about sexological bodywork, listeners, go listen to a past episode with Tallulah Sulis uh, discussing that. Um, and you can find out more information. Um, and yes, a lot of these things do kind of exist in the gray area, but you're sort of describing it, you know, obviously in these in these clinical trials. Um, what are some of the current like populations that they're working on this with? So with MDMA, it's been pretty restricted because yeah. that has been pushed by MAPS, which actually is now a pharmaceutical company that's been the plan the whole time. Um, and so they're probably going to be one of the sole distributors of MDMA. Interesting, because a lot of yeah. people are are who are into psychedelics, I see being anti-big pharma. So that's interesting. You know, if if we're going the medicalization route, it has to be that. You have the, to, yeah. Because it well, has and that's to be, probably also why it's restrictive too, because you have to really be clear about the variables. You have to really not give them any reason to question your findings and your research and that it's not, you know, um, biased in certain ways. So I, I, I get it. Absolutely. I mean, MAPS has done, I mean, an incredible job pushing against the government and pushing and pushing and pushing and fighting with like, you know, huge legal teams to get this to this point. And so I'm, I'm very appreciative of it. Cause again, there's a lot of people that are not going to want to go the underground route, the community route. They don't feel safe outside of a medical system. And, you know, the good thing about a prescription is it's tested. Well, you know, for sure there's no fentanyl in there. Right. Mm -hmm. And the dose is controlled and it's standardized. And so there's, there's ways in which, you know, where we can't ensure that with individual providers, it is really insured from a prescription route. Yeah. The same with psilocybin, the trials that I'm on, we're, we're using synthetic psilocybin. It's not the raw mushroom because that can't be standardized. Huh. So how do they make synthetic psilocybin? I'm not a chemist, but yeah, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how the extraction thing goes and you've got the molecule and then you, yeah, some, some well, I, I guess I, I have a question about this. So in your bio, you mentioned animism and for folks who don't know that, how would you describe animism? Everything is alive. And so does that also mean synthetic things are alive? And I ask this because I think a lot of people who are maybe drawn to psilocybin are like, oh, it's natural, right? And they they talk about sort of being in relationship with the mushroom and, and also that like mushrooms have such a really cool neural network. Just watch Fantastic Fungi, you know, they're alive. And and so I'm curious how, how it is to sort of work with a synthetic form of something versus a natural one. Mm-hmm. 
you know, this is where like all of the dualism starts to reveal itself of like, why are we drawing these lines here and there? And like, where, mm. where you know, how did they come up with this, you know, yeah. this, this idea of something being synthetic? Yeah. Um, Cause you're saying like, it still has a LSD is like from a mushroom. MDMA is the root of the sassafras, sassafras. plant. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it, again, like I cheat sometimes by going to quantum physics. <laughs> no, but please, I mean, share quantum physics because I think a lot of times when people listen to this, um, I've mentioned this so many times in the podcast, I think maybe I need to do some therapy around it because I got one bad, I got this one bad review one time on uh, iTunes that was like, because I've been talking more about, you know, all, all these dualism things, right? And people being like, sounds like bored white women talking about spirituality. And I'm like, this is also science, you know, like we're mm -hmm. also talking mm -hmm. about physics. We're talking about science. So mm -hmm. for some people it's woo woo for other people, it's their, you know, safe indigenous, you know, practice for other folks, it's quantum physics. And mm -hmm. so I really like to challenge that a lot every time I get the chance to, but maybe I yeah. just need to get over this comment. <laughs> I mean, the comment is emblematic, you know, it's like a signpost of right. this occurrence in life, this idea, this, um, you know, Cartesian perspective, you know, if you can't, uh, if you can't see it, it does not exist. If it is not measurable, it does not exist, which is crazy because like, what is radiation? <laughs> like, you know, you, you can like really quickly debunk this um, there's, there's like a very myopic perspective that these folks have. And I, ironically, I find it a lot in the medical system where it's, it's almost as if they've left the rest of science behind them because the field has required for them to become so materialistic. And when I say materialistic, meaning like, you know, only that which is material and anything that is immaterial is not real, which is like mm. so illogical, actually. Mm -hmm. So counter to what tons of science says and physics is a great field but quantum physics negates most of physics <laughs> it's sort of like yeah no but not actually like not actually right and so um now I lost where we had. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens and when you start talking about quantum physics. So yeah, <laughs> synthetic. Animism. Thank you yeah. for bringing us back. So like, like we're okay. on a journey. We're on a journey. <laughs> yeah. What is a mushroom? Like, if we look at this under a microscope and we keep drilling down, what are we going to discover? Like, oh, okay, there's an atom, and what is an atom? Atom is a frequent. It's an energy. Like, it's not a fucking solid thing. <laughs> it's not solid, actually. Um, plug for Aldous Huxley's um, Dwarf Perceptions book around yes. this. Um, uh -huh, uh -huh. But he has a great thing on, um, is he on MDMA? I forget which medicine he's on. It might be LSD. And he has this whole thing about chairs. <laughs> it's great. Um, and th these are not solid. Like this is not solid at all. Like if we actually drill down, you know, and move into the cells of things and into like nothing is solid. Everything is immaterial actually. And um, there's a beautiful, I'm forgetting his name, but there's a beautiful um, theorist who came up with this theory of evolutionary game theory. And it, it basically puts out that like our mind creates our reality. It constructs these images um, based on prior experiences, but like all of this is not actually here. It's not actually here. Oh my gosh. That makes me, I feel anxious. My attachment anxiety. I'm like, I'm like, yeah. when, 
where where am I even sitting? Yeah. Well, there you go. Now we're just like in a non-ordinary state if we confront that reality. Yeah. <laughs> we're sober, y'all. <laughs> and, you know, and that's where people go on the classic psychedelics. They start to go yeah. into, whoa, the tree is breathing. Whoa, I feel like I'm part of the tree. You know, there's this sense of like starting to feel the connection between energy. And so for the synthetic piece, you know, I that's not real. Ultimately, this is just energy, right? You and I are electromagnetic beings. We're just energy. There's nothing like actually solid here if we drill down, um, you know, to the finest points. And so I, I say that to help liberate people, you know, like if you have this structure in your mind and you're using it to prevent access for yourself to good medicines that are out there, then be free. Go learn about quantum physics and learn that there, everything is a part of nature be, because it's here. Mm. There is no separation between nature and not nature. Th- this is na- technology is nature. It's what, it's what has evolved. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. So you're saying the synthetics have to also be used so they can more quantify it because if we're using plants, every plant is maybe different. So it's much harder to know sort of what, yeah, to, to control, I guess, or, or I don't know, collaborate with in certain ways. Hmm. What well, um more saying that like all, all paths are good paths. You know? Oh yeah, to that and I think just thinking about like the non-synthetic mushrooms, mm-hmm. it sounds like they can all know. really they can all really like impact differently. And it's hard you know, to sometimes know. The what I think what you're speaking to is the fact that the amount of psilocin and psilocybin in the mushroom, we can't know. So that's the psychoactive compound mm. in mushrooms. Well, not in all mushrooms. We've got like ammonita and whatnot. Got it. But Very yeah, so if people are like, oh, I can take this much amount, but they don't necessarily know and wait what is happening in that And mushroom. so you can overdose or underdose. And like, yeah. that's fine if you've really got your sea legs, you know, but for people who are new to that space, that that can be more risky, right? And you can end up, um, sort of in a journey that you didn't fully consent to, you yeah. know, and if there's a lot of trauma in the system that can feel like too much really fast. Yeah. So an advantage of the synthetic is certainly being able to know for sure how much of a psychoactive compound you're getting. And, and I'll just say from my work on the trials, I see no difference. I don't see a difference between them at all. So much so that people when they're on the trial, oh, the mushrooms are telling me this, the mushrooms are telling me that oh, I'm moving in, you know, I'm becoming one with the bed. It's, there's no difference. And so I think, you know, what we're speaking to is like the, the essence of the thing, the mm-hmm. essence of the thing is still, it's totally still there. Interesting. Well, I know we could have like a, a an episode on each of these things, but in a, <laughs> yeah. in a quick, quick speed round, um, how is psilocybin sort of different and, and, and what sort of the benefit of that versus MDMA? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very different medicines. Um, so I would say that psilocybin and my, this is my experience of them. So, you know, huge qualifier there. Everyone is going to have their own unique relationship with that medicine. Yeah. Um, but for well, me, I, li- I like that you said that about the other medicine and just psychedelics in general, that it's relational work, right? You're sort of building relationship with something else and that can kind of in my mind, I guess, bring up an experiential quality of how do we form relationships in general. 
You got it. You got it so good. Yes. I got just, it. Like, jazzed <laughs> me so much. I just, yeah. put, I sort of just put this together. Well, I'm just thinking this out right now as I'm saying it. And I, I think I believe this before, but you know, just like in any relationship, you can have quote unquote bad trips or negative experiences, or you can also have healing ones. And so I'm hearing it's just another hopeful relationship that can offer healing qualities. Um, Absolutely. People are willing to work at the relationship in a, in a safe container. Absolutely. And like, are you willing to be in, in prayer, you know, or devotion to, to the medicine or, you know, whatever word feels right for you of prayers? Like, I know that word can feel like a lot for some folks, uh, but how can you cultivate a relationship with mushroom or with the MDMA? You know, can you get a little bit of, you know, saffron oil and put it on your altar somewhere so that you're, 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 letting it know that you want to be in connection so that we're not doing this sort of extractive utilitarian um, way of relating, which is what made, you know, so many people so sick and and wanting to seek out these medicines because they don't feel that there's sacredness in their life. So the process by which you enter into psychedelic journeying is in of itself a practice of healing, is in itself a practice of coming into ritual, coming into relationship surrendering letting go of control that is something the western societies really struggle with you know we like micromanage everything and need things to be tightly packed and scheduled and ordered and and chaos is very uncomfortable which brings me to the mushrooms because they are much more chaotic than mdma mdma is kind of um you know you can certainly confront like a lot of stuff on mdma and have si show up you can have grief show up um, you can have shame show up, like these things can totally show up on MDMA, but it is largely a more like guaranteed experience, largely a more positive, probably going to be tolerable experience. Mushrooms, not at all. You're, you're going to get where you're going to get. And there's every data point is possible. And so I usually encourage folks when I'm working in the harm reduction space to to really wait until they feel ready to work with that one and then to work very slowly with dosing and like, you know, really building their sea legs out because the mushrooms can take you a lot of different places. One place it commonly takes people is down and into their pain, but not in a way where you are, um, you know, like MDMA, there's like this cotton candy wrapped around you as you, you, as got you look this. at this yeah. and you're like, oh, this, oh, well, you know, I just seem to be nicer to myself. <laughs> You know, the mushrooms, um, you know, and to bring in our connection, the mushrooms, for me, they feel like somatic experiencing. Those actually feel like the same thing to me at this point where they're going to take you down and you're going to re-experience it. But from, uh, you know, a point where you're actually safe now, you're not in that environment. And there gets to be a sense of completion that happens. And so often you're going to be taken into your terror. You're going to be taken into your pain. It can be a very somatic medicine. A lot of discharge can show up. Um, you know, there can be thrashing in that space. So it can be, as a trauma processor, it is excellent, but you really need to be able to handle going and reliving some of that and revisiting it in a really, really, really experiential way. You know, if you were very dissociated when whatever the trauma happened, um, you know, when the trauma happened, you're now going to experience it not dissociated mm. and so get to actually process in the body what the hell happened and i know each case in person is going to be unique and we're talking more you know in in terms of trials but i'm curious like 
from a harm reduction and whatever perspective, like where do you think, what kind of tools do people need and what kind of like space mm-hmm. so that they're not just re-traumatizing mm-hmm. in this, in this journey versus having like a, a somatic experiencing example that is um, corrective. Right. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say like people can have totally light, unitive, like ego dissolution experiences too. I'm just naming this other one because it's often one that doesn't get talked yeah. about. It's in the shadow. And yeah. Um, so, well, like you said, you kind of, you're, you're getting, you get what you get a little more. I get what I get. <laughs> so, depending yeah. what you need, you may need that. You may need something else. But um, much like somatic experiencing, like if you're not having a, uh, a safe re a safer re-narrating of it, it can feel re-traumatizing. So what, what kinds of tools do people need to, I don't want to say guarantee because no guarantees, but mm-hmm. like to have a potential corrective healing space? Well, one, again, bring in SE titration. So don't start with a huge dose. Take, take your time, start with a microdose. Notice how that is in your body. Then move up, start with like, then go to like a gram, see how that is and go up 0.5, you know, give yourself a lot of time to climb. I find that, you know, we have these protector parts inside and often folks will jump to a high dose too quick. They'll have an experience that is meaningful, but then the next day their protectors are freaking pissed and they're back online. And there's a lot of regression that happens actually, because they Mm. can't integrate it. It's too big for their system. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like trying to skip biology and just going straight to OCHEM. Not yeah. gonna work. Not gonna well, it's, work. It's also like the the approach that some people take of like just push them in the deep end, right? You'll learn exactly. that you'll figure it out. That is one way, you know, trauma is too much, too soon, too fast. So I really encourage like if you're actually wanting the progress to stick, to not go that route. Mm-hmm. To not go that route. So taking your time to be slow and really tracking in your nervous system, like feel confident about your ability to handle the dose that you take. That is one thing. Another thing is make sure that you have at least a sitter for your first few experiences. You know, this, this can be free. You can ask a friend who you love or, or a family member or anybody who feels like they, you know, they're nice. They can hold space and listen to you and won't like, won't sort of insert too much of their own self into the process. If you have someone like that in your life, ask them to sit for you. And that that can mean that they're just like in another room. And if you need them, you can reach out to them, right? And maybe they can help you go to the bathroom or get water and things like that. If you can find a guide, that's definitely ideal as you start to get more in the two grams and up range. And, yeah. you know, guides can be expensive though. Some... Yeah. And check some, out those vetting, those vetting things. I got the vetting things, you know, and... And, and if any point you feel that that guide isn't getting you, that you're not being heard or they're pushing you to take more than you think, walk away, walk away. You should never take more than what you feel is right. That's a unfortunate thing that happens in the space where some guides will suggest like, oh yeah, let's do this dose. And the person may say, oh, that feels like a little too big for me. And they're like, just conquer your fear and move through it. That's just your ego, not wanting to submit. Don't listen to that. That is bullshit. If you're not ready for that dose, do not move forward with this guide if they don't hear you and respect mm. that boundary that you're placing. Yeah, thank you. I mean, we could keep talking about this and I'm going to have to have you back. But <laughs> since we're about out of time, 
if folks are ready to maybe take some of the next like legal steps to to try to find this medicine, um, what are the yeah where where should they start? Mm-hmm. Well, it's really unfortunate, honestly, legally right now. So I'm going to speak to that a yeah. little bit underground as well, just again from a harm reduction approach. So legally, if you're interested in ketamine, which is a gorgeous medicine, it's super gentle actually. Um, and it's really great for trauma. It's it's kind of surprised me. Honestly, I when I started working with it, I was like, what? I don't know. But it's great, actually. It's like superb for depression and suicidality. It instantly lifts suicidality. So absolutely pursue that medicine if that is something you're struggling with. So you can find ketamine providers. You can go the medical route and IV clinics. You go the psychothera- psychotherapeutic route and find a clinic or a provider that is offering ketamine-assisted psychotherapy or therapy. A really good resource is psychedelicsupportnetwork.com. This is a platform that anybody who's doing anything related to psychedelic work, um, there's providers who have been vetted listed on here. So that may include people who just do integration work, right? Whether you go somewhere and do a journey and need integration or you do your own journey or whatever. They'll also do harm reduction work. So prep around that as well. There are people who do ketamine assisted therapy work there, you know, and absolutely psychedelic support network is not an underground uh, directory at all. And in the spirit of harm reduction, there are underground providers listed on that directory. And so you can ask, I get that asked all the time, you know, and so I, that can be a resource for you. Um, to go that way. And then, yeah, legally with the other ones, participating in a trial and really thinking about if a trial actually is a place where your body feels safe, right? That it's going to be a a rigorous protocol, standardized. You're not going to be able to individualize anything, including the playlist, which I got to tell you, sometimes is really not That really makes an impact. So just don't even think about it. But like it is totally an avenue and it's a free avenue, which is really and sometimes studies will even pay you, you know, pay for parts of of the treatment itself. So those are the legal ways to go about this right now. And how can folks get in touch with uh, you if you would like, potentially work with you? Um, because you're an awesome psychotherapist. Um, how can people get in touch? Yeah. Um, so my private practice is called Tethered Healing. Um, and so you can find me at tetheredhealing.com. And that's kind of it. I'm not really on social media. (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) I'll be joining you soon. (laughs) Yeah. It's been a long, long time since I've been at like 2015, almost 10 years. Yeah. Well, well, you seem happier. Yeah, I can't. It's a whole world. And I know it'd probably be better to market, but I just, I think ultimately who finds me is who's meant to find me. And I trust that. Well, thank you so much for for joining. Um, Again, listeners, if you want to follow what I'm doing, I am on Instagram, (laughs) Sluts and Scholars. (laughs) You can listen anywhere you get your podcasts or at slutsandscholars.com. And Dr. Elowen, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nicoletta. Sluts and Scholars a podcast for professionals who prioritize pleasure. Sluts and Scholars is a podcast produced by Sluts and Scholars Media, LLC. It is a shame-free educational podcast made for your entertainment and informational desires only. 
The podcast, any opinions we share, and any resources, including social media and emails from us, are not therapy, medical care, or professional advice, and do not create a patient-client relationship. None of the information, opinions, suggestions, resources, or exercises mentioned in this podcast should be used without clearance from your healthcare provider. All opinions, information, and ideas expressed by the guests are solely their own. If you need emergency mental health or medical help, please call 911 or 988 or go to your nearest emergency center. We hope you enjoy the show.